1835, there was a, a small newspaper in New York called the New York Sun. And they published a series of articles detailing this incredible discovery of life on the moon. They used all this scientific language, and I'm not going to repeat because I would mispronounce all of it, but they used all this language to convince people and to talk about in detail all of these different creatures and life forms that they found on the moon. And these articles, they claimed that there was evidence that, that there was these tiny reindeer-like creatures, that there were bears with horns. And my favorite was that there were beavers that walked on two legs and held their young ones in their arms like a human. And people actually believed this. But be, it was because they falsely attributed these articles to a, a well-known and competent and famous astronomer of that day. And the, the attachment to this famous astronomer gave the story a level of credibility. They sold a ton of papers while they were putting out those articles. But after they saw that their big boost in paper sales, they quietly announced that it was all a hoax. Now, I hope that you guys are smart enough to not fall for something like that. You shouldn't have trouble recognizing that a story about uh, life on the moon is fake news. But it's getting very difficult to determine what is true and what is fake. Sometimes it's because people are just reporting so many contradicting, so much contradicting information about the same issue. Sometimes people are intentionally misleading and, and twisting the truth as a means of deceiving their audience. I don't have a solution for that. I'm not, I'm not up here to tell you how to differentiate between fake and real news, but what I can tell you is that this is not a new concept. As we learned from the New York Sun, people spreading fake news is not unique to our day. And it's frustrating, but lying to manipulate the people around us has been going on for 2,000 years. Our passage today is Matthew 28, verses 1 through 20. And we'll see that even 2,000 years ago, fake news was being spread in order to discredit Jesus and distract people from the truth of the resurrection. And so Matthew, in this chapter, wants to set the story straight. So open your Bibles with me to Matthew 28, and we will read verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> now after the Sabbath... Toward the, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. In Matthew, we find two women, Mary Magdalene 
and the other Mary. Mary Magdalene was one of Jesus' most faithful followers. We know from Luke chapter 8 that before she followed Jesus, Jesus cast seven demons from Mary Magdalene. And from that moment, she was faithful and she followed after him. And she was likely from a wealthy family because she and a group of other women traveled with Jesus and the disciples to provide for them financially, to, to care for their needs. Because Jesus and the disciples didn't work, they went around doing ministry. The other Mary's identity is a little less clear. You can probably tell from the title, The Other Mary. Matthew didn't put a lot of work in here to let us know who this was. So some people think it's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Some think it's Jesus' aunt. Some think it's the mother of one of Jesus' disciples. I don't know. I don't think we can be sure about who this is, but that's okay. Matthew doesn't take great pain to uh, clarify the identity of the other Mary, so I don't think that's the most important thing going on here. What is important here is that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. The other Gospels show us this as well. Each of the Gospels lists uh, a different number of women, and that's just because they've chosen to focus on specific women. But we know that, that it was a group of women that Jesus appeared to first. And this group of women that Jesus appeared to, they were also the women that remained with Jesus through the entirety of his crucifixion. After Jesus was betrayed in the garden, all of his disciples fled They abandoned him, and they hid for fear of their life. Peter tried to stay for a little while, but you know what he did. He denied three times and then fled and hide. John was at the crucifixion for a little bit before he took Jesus' mother home. But the other disciples are nowhere to be found. The 11 disciples were not the ones who stood by him at that time. It was this group of women. These are the ones that remained with Jesus until his death. These were the ones that were there at his burial, And these are the ones who are now visiting the tomb. And as they're on their way to the tomb, Matthew tells us there was this great earthquake. And an angel descended to roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. And this angel had this dazzling appearance like lightning flashing across the sky. His clothing was was white as snow. And that's a pretty standard picture of an angel. We see that, those similar descriptions throughout the Bible. But, but this image of the angel coming down is a lot scarier than we tend to think. Because if you think back to Sunday school and you pull out the flannel graph and people are showing you the resurrection, it's, it's like four o'clock in the afternoon, not a cloud in the sky, it's super sunny, and then a, a nice looking young angel floats down and he's like, Hello, guards, I'm going to move the stone away now. That is not the picture that we see here. The guards, I mean, it's dawn on the first day, so it's still dark. The sun is just starting to rise. It's very, very dark out. The guards are guarding this tomb in darkness. Maybe they have their lanterns flashing. I, I don't know if they even have that. But out of nowhere, they, see this, they feel this massive earthquake, and an angel whose appearance is like lightning comes out of nowhere. They probably can't even see because of the flashing. This is a terrifying experience. The ground starts shaking, and you can't see anything. Now put yourself in these guys' shoes. If I was one of these guards, I would be regretting every decision I have ever made that led me to this moment. Because they know they are not on the right side of this. We don't know if these were the same guards that mocked and beat Jesus. They may have been. But either way, they knew who Jesus was. They knew who Jesus claimed to be. Right? So, So the Son of God, Jesus claims to be the Son of God. Then your boss 
acknowledging that the supposed son of God is innocent, says, but we're going to crucify him anyways. And you get tasked with guarding that man's tomb. And all of a sudden, an earthquake happens and an angel shows up. You got to be thinking like Jesus was in there calling for backup or something. You would be terrified if you were in this position. So it makes sense that they ended up on the ground like dead men. They have to be concerned that this is not going to end well for them. They are not the good guys in this scenario. And I think that Matthew's having a little bit of fun at the expense of the guards as well. The word that he translates uh, trembled, it's the verbal form of the word earthquake. So this angel showed up. He didn't just shake the earth. He also shook these soldiers to the point almost of death, it seems like. And they end up paralyzed on the ground. So the men tasked with, with guarding the tomb of a dead man are so terrified that they themselves become like dead man, dead men, while the man whose tomb they are guarding is not actually dead, but he is alive. And this is the scene that the women arrive to. You've got an angel next to the tomb with, with a bunch of guards strewn all over the floor like they're dead. And naturally, the women would be afraid a little bit as well. But the angel quickly tells them, you have nothing to fear. I know why you're here. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here. He has risen. Come and see the empty tomb. And the women go, they look and they check, they see that the tomb truly is empty. And then the angel tells them, okay, now you must go quickly. Go and find the disciples. Tell them to go to Galilee and meet Jesus there. And Jesus had actually already told the disciples this. He told them in Matthew 26, once I die and I am raised up, then I will see you again in Galilee. But since the disciples are cowering and hiding and locking themselves away, they could probably use the reminder. So the women leave. They're in a hurry with a little bit of fear, a little bit of joy. Uh, Actually, it says great joy, but a little bit of fear, fearful from seeing this angel, but overjoyed because they've just seen that the tomb is empty. They know that Jesus has risen from the dead. So they get on their way, and suddenly Jesus shows up to meet them. He greets them, and immediately they fall before him. They grab hold of his feet and worship him. This demonstrates that the proper response to the risen Christ, one of humility and worship, but it also demonstrates that Jesus' resurrection was not merely spiritual, This was not some hallucination or or delusion as some have claimed. Jesus physically rose from the dead. These women physically grabbed hold of his feet when they worshiped him. And then Jesus tells these women exactly what the angel said. Go and tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. So what what Matthew's wanting to get across very clearly to us here is Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. He really did rise from the dead. And I know that you're probably thinking... Wow, Matthew's point in his resurrection account was to tell us that Jesus rose from the dead. Great observation, Garrett. Um, But in the next verses, you'll read that the Jewish leaders did everything they could to discredit the news that Jesus had risen. They spread fake news. They spread false rumors that this was some grand conspiracy concocted by his disciples to trick everybody. And so Matthew here is setting the record straight. He's saying, no, here is what really happened. This was not made up. Let me tell you what happened. Jesus really rose from the dead. And this is why I said at the beginning that the presence of the women is so important here. If this was a conspiracy to to trick, to deceive, 
then the disciples did a terrible job. If the goal was to make up a fake story to trick everyone, the disciples would not have chosen women to be the first witnesses. And I don't say that to be condescending to to women at all, but in that day, women's testimony was essentially useless. Again, that does not reflect what I believe, what this church believes, what the Bible teaches, but in that day, women could not even testify in court. No one trusted the word of a woman. So if they were trying to, to concoct a fake story, it makes much more sense that they would want to find somebody credible. Maybe somebody like Peter, who was the leader of the disciples, or Joseph of Arimathea, who, who believed in Jesus, but he was a member of the or he was one of the leaders of the Jewish uh, religious faction. The fact that the gospel writers were willing to report that women were the first witnesses would have only hurted, only hurt, not hurted, hurt their uh, their credibility. And what this does is it tells us they didn't change details. They didn't pull out the things that, that, that made them look bad, the things that made it less believable. It, it makes it all the more likely that they simply reported events as they happened and that Jesus really did rise from the dead and appear first to this group of women. Let's keep reading. Uh, chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. <clears throat> While they were going, behold... Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and said and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So the story picks back up with the guards as they make their way back to the chief priests who were the people who originally uh, went and got them to guard the tomb. So they come back to the chief priests and they, and they tell them all the incredible things that happened. We, we were guarding the tomb and there was this great earthquake and an angel appeared and he rolled the stone away and then we couldn't move. We fell to the ground in fear. And upon hearing the guards' story, the priests called together the Jewish leaders, and they say, hey, guys, we gotta, we got to figure out how are we going to respond to this news. And I would have loved to be in this, this meeting because you would think that at least one person would have the sense to, to suggest exploring the whole resurrection thing. Because after all, I mean, these were trained soldiers that were guarding the tomb, and they ended up on the ground. They also know that Jesus did many miracles in his ministry. They saw him do many of those miracles. They knew he claimed to be the son of God. They knew he claimed that he was going to rise from the dead. Like, maybe somebody should have been like, you know, maybe there's something to this Jesus guy. But they don't do that. They don't consider those things. They don't consider the implications of the empty tomb. They don't consider the implications of an angel appearing to roll the stone away. They don't consider that the evidence points to Jesus being exactly who he claimed to be. Now, fake news is the best option. Let's spread a false narrative to distract away from what has happened. Their concern is to make sure that no one hears what really took place. To ensure this, they pay off the Roman soldiers. They say, spread a false report and we will give you a lot of money. And it had to be a lot of money because the story they were about to spread to the people would, would come at great risk to the soldiers. To fall asleep while you were on watch as a Roman soldier, that was a severe offense. It could even lead to execution. Some would be beheaded for such an offense. Some would be 
beaten, and then if they survived that beating, then they would be banished from their family and their home and their city. Occasionally, guards would be stationed at at the crosses where people were crucified to prevent the bodies from being taken to be buried uh, and, and to allow a prisoner to escape or to fail to guard a body that you were entrusted with. It would bring serious consequences. But part of the offer that the, the chief priests made to the guards was protection. They were protecting him from those consequences. They said, if the governor finds out, we'll take care of him. You guys will be okay. You just, you take the money and you tell the people what we told you to tell them. So the guards have two options. They can tell everybody this incredible story and hope they believe. But if they don't, they could potentially be killed for this. Or they can accept a large amount of money and the promise of protection in order to spread a false story. So they took the deal. They spread this fake news to confuse people, to obscure what really happened that day. The chief priests, they they spread this fake news because Jesus was a threat to their position and authority. They were fearful of what would happen if Jesus really was who he claimed to be. And at the time that Matthew wrote the gospel, which would have been somewhere around 20 years after Jesus rose from the grave, people were still spreading this story. And even 100 years after that, we know from historical writings, uh, at least in 150 AD, the Jews were still saying this. No, 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 Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The disciples took the body. Everybody knows that. Now, I think Matthew includes this this section that we just read for a couple of reasons, because it, it validates his account in a couple of ways. First, it proves that the tomb is empty. The tomb was empty. That is a historical fact. Jesus was beaten and mocked. He was crucified. He was put in a tomb. And three days later, he was no longer in that tomb. And by spreading this, uh, by spreading this story, the, the chief priests acknowledge that on the third day, Jesus really was not in that tomb any longer. They couldn't just say, oh, no, the disciples lied. He's still there. People could go check. It wasn't that far from the city of Jerusalem. So we know the tomb is empty. And that's, I think, why Matthew includes this, because now we're forced to make a decision. Is it empty because the disciples came and took his body, or is it empty because Jesus really rose from the dead? So now we're forced to make that decision. The other reason I think that Matthew includes this section is because the false story spread by the chief priests makes no sense. It is not plausible in any way. It's unlikely that these guards could sleep through a massive stone being rolled away. But even if they could, even if they were sleeping so deeply that they couldn't hear the massive stone, how would they know it was the disciples who came and took the body if they were that deeply asleep? And the idea that the disciples would even do that is absurd. Where have the disciples been through this entire week with Jesus or last few days with Jesus? When Jesus was beaten and mocked and nailed to his cross, how many of the disciples tried to prevent it? None of them. They were hiding. They were terrified. They were cowering in fear. But according to the chief priests, on the third day, after Jesus died, his disciples finally decided, now's the time, guys. This is the time when we act. We're going to go and and take his body, and that will show them. That, That makes no sense. If the disciples were not willing to risk their lives to protect Jesus when he was actually alive... Certainly, they would not have been willing to to risk their lives to go and and steal his dead body. But let's assume that's what happened. Let's let's assume the disciples stole the body. Then we have to ask the question, why? What do they gain from stealing this body? They didn't gain power. 
or influence. They didn't get prestige. They didn't get uh, positions of, uh, of authority. They didn't get wealthy. They weren't respected for this. They were despised for this. They were hated for their faith. Their faith in Jesus led them to be tortured and die miserable deaths. And when given the opportunity to recant, to deny their faith in Jesus, they wouldn't, they would rather die. They died for their faith that Jesus really rose from the dead. Would anyone really be willing to be crucified upside down as Peter was for a joke? For the sake of a fake story that brought no personal gain? I don't think they would. I think that is incredibly implausible. And it's even more implausible when we consider uh, Jesus' family. James, the brother of Jesus, he died for his faith. He was thrown from a building when he was preaching Christ's resurrection. And when that didn't kill him, they brought over a club and they crushed his skull. And what's interesting about James is he did not believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. While Jesus was alive and doing miracles, James was saying, no, my brother is crazy. He's not the son of God. He's just Jesus, my brother. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if my brother came up to me and told me he was literally God, he would have to do something pretty crazy to convince me. Maybe something like rising from the dead. Right? I can't think of any other reason why James would change his mind and be willing to be killed in such a brutal manner for a joke that the disciples started. If the disciples made up the resurrection, they risked everything for absolutely no reason. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead, the chief priests and the guards have everything to lose. The disciples had no reason to lie, Right? The chiefs and the guards, they had every reason. When we lay out the historical facts, they point to what we have already said. Jesus Christ is risen. But why is this important? Does it really change anything if Jesus died? If he did or didn't, what does it change in our lives? To answer that question... We're going to briefly look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So you can turn there with me. And in that chapter, we see that there were certain people in the church at Corinth who were denying that Jesus would resurrect his followers in the future. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 14 through 19. Starting in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. So essentially, what Paul is arguing here is that the resurrection of Jesus is tied to the future resurrection of his people. If Jesus cannot resurrect his own people from the grave, then he doesn't have the power to raise himself from the grave. And if Jesus never rose from the dead, then preaching the gospel is meaningless. 
If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is useless. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are not celebrating our Lord and Savior today. We're celebrating some Jewish guy that died 2,000 years ago. And actually, if we're wrong about Jesus rising from the dead, then we're in a little bit of trouble with God himself because for the last 2,000 years, the church has been telling everybody that Jesus was God in flesh and that he rose from the dead. But if we're wrong, we've been misleading people for 2,000 years. And then verses 17 through 19 really drive home why the resurrection is so important. If Christ did not rise, our faith is futile. It's of absolutely no value. But if Christ did not rise, we are still dead in our sins. If Christ did not rise, there's no forgiveness. We are still under the wrath and judgment of God. And there is no way out of that. Forgiveness is not on the table. If Christ did not rise, we have no hope. We will live and die and be judged for all of eternity. And Paul says that if Christ truly did not rise from the dead, then we are to be most pitied of all people on earth because we have given ourselves to a lie, devoted everything to something of absolutely no value or benefit. Church, the entire Christian faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus went to the cross in our place. Our sins were laid on him, and he paid the punishment that we deserve for our sins. But the fact that he rose again, it it proves that the payment for our sins was accepted, that the sacrifice he made on our behalf was sufficient, and God was pleased by it. If he didn't rise, that sacrifice could not cover our sins. But praise the Lord because Jesus did rise. So his sacrifice has satisfied the wrath of God. Our sin has been paid in full. And those who come to God by faith in Jesus Christ are forgiven and declared righteous in his sight. So forgiveness makes, or the resurrection makes forgiveness available. And a second reason that the resurrection is so important is that it proves that Jesus conquered death. Jesus promised through his ministry eternal life to those who would believe. And the resurrection shows he can come good on that promise. He can keep his word. The grave could not hold Jesus, and it will not hold his people either. And this won't be on the screen, but later in the same chapter, Paul writes that the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection has given us victory over both sin and death. The resurrection changes everything. It is the most important moment in all of history. If Jesus didn't rise, all of his work uh, in his life on the cross, all of it was meaningless. And there is no hope for for any of us. But Jesus can offer forgiveness and eternal life because he did rise from the dead. And the resurrection proves every claim that Jesus made, which makes the response of the chief priests all the more remarkable. Because the chief priests and Jewish leaders, they knew Jesus very well. They kept a close eye on him throughout his entire ministry. They had seen firsthand many of the miracles that he did and doubtless heard of several others. Back in Matthew 27, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, these same chief priests were at the cross mocking Jesus. And they said, Jesus, call down an angel. Have them get you off the cross. 
If you do that, then we will believe. Right? They say, if you give us proof, we will believe that you are the Son of God. But they've seen the proof. They've seen it in Jesus' ministry, and they've seen it yet again with his resurrection. Their refusal to believe was not a lack of evidence. And that is so often true in our world today. It is, people don't disbelieve because of a lack of evidence. It is because of their own sin and pride. They're afraid of, of what it might cost them to follow Jesus. If you are here today and you have never put your faith in Jesus, don't imitate the foolishness of the chief priests who rejected the truth. And I can tell you that what you gain in Christ is of infinitely more value than anything you give up to follow him. All of us have sinned against a holy God. And that sin leaves us separated from God and under his wrath. Those who die in their sins are separated from God in hell for all of eternity. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus lived a sinless life. He died the death that we deserved. He paid the penalty for our sin in order to make salvation available to us. Forgiveness and acceptance before God is not something we earn through, through good deeds and acts of kindness. It is not something man can do alone. It is a free gift of God's grace that we accept by faith in Jesus. And so I invite you today, repent and turn from your sins. Believe in Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All right, we're going to step back into Matthew 28 now. So Matthew 28, the final five verses here, verses 16 through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. <clears throat> so after the report of the guards, we pick back up with Jesus' disciples. And as I will point out in a moment, this is not just the 11, but, but likely included a larger number of Jesus' followers. But Matthew's placing the emphasis here on the 11. And I say 11 because Judas at this point had already betrayed Jesus and taken his own life. So there's just 11 of them here. But they make their way to Galilee, which would have been probably 90 miles or so, give or take a few, depending on where in Galilee. So this was not like a, a let's just walk down the street. This was a pretty substantial journey. So this is a good amount of time after the resurrection. But they make this trip. They come to Galilee. And when they finally come to the place Jesus told them to come to, they see the risen Jesus. And it says that some worshiped, but there were some that doubted. Now, I think it is extremely unlikely that the ones doubting here are the 11 disciples or any of the 11 disciples. We know from the Gospel of John that Jesus had actually already briefly appeared to the disciples in Jerusalem. That's where Thomas touched the wounds in Jesus' hands and side, and they recognized that he is who he claims to be. The disciples have seen Jesus. They have recognized that he is risen from the dead and that he is Lord. They, they know that. So it's unlikely to be them. Also, back in verse 10, 
Uh, we don't have to turn back there. But when Jesus tells Mary to go and tell the disciples, he doesn't say disciples. He says, go and tell my brothers. And every time Jesus uses that term, that phrase, my brothers, he's not referring to the 11. He's referring to all of his followers collectively. So the ones doubting here were likely other followers of Jesus who were present at this time. But the word doubt here is a little bit of an unfortunate translation. It's not a wrong translation, but, but I think we kind of carry our own sense of the word into it. Um, it's not, it would be better translated as hesitate. Some of them hesitated. I don't think this was doubt in the sense that they were saying, oh, no, that's not Jesus. I do not believe that Jesus has risen. It's not that kind of doubt. It was the kind of doubt that was, was overwhelmed by what they were seeing that's thinking, is this really him? Could he really have done what he said? The disciples already understanding that Jesus has risen from the grave, they immediately worship him. But some of the others, they're a little bit slower to process what's going on in front of them. And then we see Jesus speak, and he says that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. Now, Jesus was authoritative even in his earthly ministry, right? Jesus has always been God. For all of eternity, he existed as God with the Father and the Spirit. He is equal in power and quality and nature and being to the Father and the Spirit. But when Jesus took on human nature so that he could save humanity, he set aside some of the glory and privileges that come with being God. He subjected himself to certain limitations so that even though he was fully God, he could also be fully man. But at the resurrection, all that Jesus set aside was restored to him. And Jesus is now sovereignly reigning over all things. And here we see that he has called his disciples and us to go to every nation and make disciples. A disciple of Jesus is one who, who puts their faith in Jesus, who submits to Jesus as Lord, and, and follows him in obedience. So we are called to go and make more disciples of Jesus. Making disciples requires relationship and investment. Right? First, we have to tell them who Jesus is. If they don't know who Jesus is, how can they be his disciple? If they have not put their faith in Jesus, they can't follow him. They cannot believe in him. So the first step is that we have to go and tell people who Jesus is and what he has done. But we don't stop there. The goal is not to just make converts. The goal is to make disciples. And that means we have to remain with them, doing life with them, walking alongside them, showing them what it is that Jesus called us to and how he has asked us to live. And part of that process says it is baptizing and teaching, right? Baptism is a public profession of faith. It symbolizes our sharing in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we have died with him, that we have died to sin and we are raised to new life in Christ. So we, we baptize them in, for that reason and then we teach them the commands of Jesus, everything that he has commanded of us. And baptizing and teaching, those aren't the commands here. Those are qualifying the command. The command is to go and make disciples. But baptizing and teaching is a part of that disciple-making process. So disciples of Jesus are called to make more disciples of Jesus. This does not apply only to those who stood before Jesus at Galilee that day. This applies to every single believer. Every single one of you in this room who would say, yes, I am a follower of Jesus, you have been called to make disciples. And that's the third point. The church is called to go and make disciples. And I want you to notice the emphasis I'm putting on go. 
We are called to go and make disciples. Jesus says this is the mission of the church. Go and tell people the good news of Jesus, the good news of the resurrection. Make disciples of all nations. And you could translate that, people groups, tribes. The point is, go make disciples of every kind of people. Baptize them, teach them what I taught you so they can follow me in obedience as well. Jesus was not unclear uh, about his expectations here. But too often there is, is little to no urgency in the church to accomplish this mission. Too many Christians have grown lazy, comfortable. American churches have a terrible culture of spectating, of showing up to watch and be a part of the service in that way, but not really to participate in the mission of the church. To many Christians, ministry, the sharing of the gospel, the making of disciples, that's, that's the work of pastors or the work of missionaries. But church, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus told all of his disciples to go and make more disciples. If you are a Christian, you are called to do that very thing. Our risen Lord has commissioned you himself. And I know that that's difficult for many of us. That's intimidating for a lot of us. But look at what Jesus says in verse 20. I am with you always to the end of the age. We do not go alone in this mission. Jesus goes with us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God, with us. He has placed his spirit within us so that we could accomplish this mission. And I don't want you to be overwhelmed by this. I'm not saying get on a plane and, and fly to who knows where and start talking to the first people you meet. Like, this doesn't mean everybody needs to go and be a missionary. It doesn't mean that when you go to the grocery store, you have to stop every person you see to see if they'll listen to you talk about Jesus. Start by looking for ways to build redemptive relationships with the people around you. Invite your non-believing neighbors over for dinner. Care for them, love them, serve them so that you will have a platform to tell them what Jesus has done for them. Get to know the non-believers around you at work or, or when you go to your kid's soccer practice. Don't stand on the side by yourself. Go engage the other parents. Get to know them and build relationships so that you can point them to Jesus and make disciples. And if you feel intimidated by that, congratulations. You are just like every Christian that has ever existed. All of us are intimidated by that to some extent. Now, some people, certainly it comes easier to them than others, but that doesn't change the fact that we are all called to go and make disciples. <clears throat> there is a world that needs to know who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for them, and it is our job to do that. The big idea of this sermon of Matthew 28 is go and tell the world that Jesus lives. Go, therefore, and tell the world that Jesus lives. Our church's purpose statement says that we exist to exalt God, equip believers, and evangelize the lost. We are great at the first two. I think we do an excellent job there. But we want to be great with the last one as well. We cannot ignore the fact that Jesus has commanded us to go. There is a community around us that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, we're not going to reach that community if our plan is to wait for them to come to us. And I know that this first year for us as a church has had a number of challenges. We've had to focus inwardly to get, to get certain things stable and ready and just in working, uh, working condition. I, I get that. 
But as we start this next year, it's time for us to consider what it looks like for us to go to the community around us and make disciples as individual believers and as Redemption Bible Church. And if we want to reach the community around us like we say we do, it's going to require us to be a little uncomfortable at times. It's going to require more than just Sunday attendance. It's going to require that we leave our building to serve and engage our neighbors. Now, we are working to, to offer some opportunities for that as a church. This summer, we're going to be involved in the farmer's markets, in, in Lake Fest, so that we can be there serving, loving our neighbors, creating relationships so that we have the opportunity to share the good news of the gospel that they so desperately need. We're also working on some family events as well that, that will be a great time for you guys, but we're not going to do them here. We're going to do them in the community so that you can get out with your family and meet other families so that we can engage with them, serve them, and love them, and show them who Jesus is. Because we don't want to be a church that grows because people from other churches like our church better. That, that's not our goal. If we're growing, the primary way we want to do that is because Jesus is trans or God is transforming lost sinners through the power of the gospel. We want to see new disciples being made. But in order for that to happen, we must go and tell. They need to know who Jesus is. There are so many people in this community that do not know Jesus and will die in their sins and spend eternity in hell separated from God. We have to go and tell them. They need to know who Jesus is, that he is the sinless son of God, that he is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, that Jesus is the servant who suffered in our place, that he's the mediator between God and man, that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep that he is the son of man who reigns with all authority on heaven and earth, that he is the righteous one who makes sinners righteous, that Jesus is the prince of peace who has reconciled us to the father, and that Jesus is the resurrected Christ who defeated sin and conquered death. That is the hope our community needs, church. They don't need great church programs. They need Jesus they need the salvation that was made available through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is alive, church, and we must go and tell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, so grateful for the salvation you have made available to us through your Son. We thank you that, that Jesus, though he was sinless, bore our sins on himself and went to the cross on our behalf. We thank you that he died on that cross, but we thank you even more that he did not stay dead, that three days later he rose victoriously over sin and death. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that you have brought to us. And if there are people in here today that do not know you, Lord, I pray that you would draw them into saving faith. And Lord, I pray that you would lay it on the hearts of all of our people here, that, that we would not be content to sit in the pews and, and spectate, but Lord, that we would go and that we would tell the world that Jesus lives. Amen.